The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on The Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, Later on the show, you will hear my interview with cannabis attorney Allison Margolin here in the studio with my producer, Ricky Herrera. Good morning, Ricky. Hey, Vic. What's up, man? How are you? Life's good. It's a good summer um, week starting, and uh, tomorrow is 4th of July, so happy 4th of July if I forget to uh, to say it. And uh, for all the dog owners out there, tomorrow is that day no one looks forward to, and cats too. Uh, I don't want to leave cats out, and uh, before we start, I do want to Give a shout out to all the KPFK listeners who donated during our kickoff the summer fun drive. Your donations are always appreciated. We can't do this without you. Absolutely. Thank you for your continuous support through not just this fun drive, but all fun drives, because without you, we would not be here. Uh, Much love and gratitude to you. So let's start with some uh, news headlines and uh, things that are going around, including last week's uh, Supreme Court ruling or rulings, I should say. One of the big ones was student debt, which was a, a, a loss for President Biden. I think uh, the administration is trying to find a different way to uh, give students some relief. Well, it's interesting because uh, being someone who has paid off student loans myself, thought it was pretty pretty generous for Biden to to kind of take this on, uh, particularly the uh, the criticism he's received for a while now regarding this decision to uh, forgive student debt. Uh, looking into it more, I understand the the backlash at the same time. Spending money, for the most part, particularly major money, uh, billions of dollars, that stuff usually goes through Congress. This was deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court last Friday. And I'm not saying I agree with it. What I am saying is I I understand the backlash. It's a very complex situation that the president was in. The cost of college is insane. And people, graduates, having to pay for, for loans for up to 20 years. It's not easy to tackle. I just wonder if, uh, if, uh, if a Republican president had put this initiative up if uh, if they would have had a problem with it not being constitutional, constitutional, uh, God knows how many of these similar Trump did without anyone batting an eye. But the other the other thing that um, the Supreme Court uh, ruled on was the concerns the LGBTQ community and that certain businesses and services can deny LGBTQ people service or, or sales or whatnot based on uh, freedom of speech and such, which is a setback. Once again, it's a setback for uh, the queer movement, which uh, made a lot of headway during the Obama administration. And then ever since Trump, it's had a series of setbacks. And of course, 
with uh, Trump appointing three Supreme Court justices, very conservative ones, that sort of um, set the stage for these sorts of things uh, to uh, to happen. So I'm not surprised. Yeah. And I got a quote I want to read from uh, the chief legal officer for a very popular LGBTQ rights group, Lambda Legal. Her name is Jennifer Pfizer. She spoke about how this decision isn't really clear. Quote, I think the issue is the admittedly very broad range of goods and services in society that involves some amount of customizing and some amount of creativity. The decision last Friday does not approve discrimination by anybody and everybody that uses some creativity, some talent, some skill to create a custom product. The decision today addresses a particular thing and describes that thing as involving extensive involvement with the customer to create unique work that involves the artistic expression of the designer. So just to give listeners a, a little more insight into the actual law and the particular case, uh, the Supreme Court decided in favor of a Christian web designer who resides in Colorado. Uh, she refused to create a website to celebrate a same-sex wedding. Her basis for this was uh, religious objections. And a lot of people think that this decision by the Supreme Court will affect other minority groups and could open the door uh, to other cases and essentially chip away at civil rights protections, which kind of what you just mentioned, the the, the momentum that the LGBTQ plus community has gained, uh, particularly under the Obama administration. Good. Yeah, Lambda Legal is very well known. Um, thanks for that, uh, reading that. Appreciate it. Um, let's go to our next topic, which is, it's interesting that they're calling a shoplifting epidemic because, well, We've been seeing this a lot happening in the news, and usually the news is what we see on the news is the tip of the iceberg, but I'll let you take the lead on that because I know you know a lot about it. Yeah, well, a lot of major media outlets have been reporting, I'd say since around the, the COVID pandemic uh, and after it, they've been spotlighting uh, shoplifting, stories after stories that I'm sure we're all familiar with of of shoplifting crime uh, affecting major retailers and stuff. And a number, which I thought was just mind-blowing, but what do I know? This shoplifting epidemic is estimated to be over $100 billion annually in terms of revenue, revenue losses. Um, there have been laws over the years that I wouldn't say empower shoplifters or anything, but even some retailers have... Uh, internal instructions to not engage shoplifters. So right. I've I've read quotes that it's kind of a wild, wild west out there, yeah, if you will. Security, for security concerns uh, so that the employees are not hurt or injured, um, some businesses will, uh, will tell their employees to turn a blind eye and not confront so it doesn't escalate. There's no violence involved in case that's what would happen. Uh, obviously, shoplifting has been happening since someone put something on a table to sell. Be remiss if I didn't say this, and I'm not uh, making excuses for shoplifters or justifying at all because I don't think it's okay. Although I do have to say, if I saw a mother shoplifting baby formula, I will not say a word. And I think that that's true for most people. 
Um, but looking at the the state of the economy for average Americans, not the super wealthy, not those that have you know stocks and uh, are in the top one percent or even five percent, but for average Americans with inflation just out of control, I'm sure that has a lot to do with it. You know when. Uh, your lot of basic products that we consume daily, weekly, monthly have had, you know, 30%, 40% increases in the last year or so. Um, so, you know, there's a cause and effect to, yeah, it hurts. It hurts everybody because it trickles down again, back to consumers when companies lose money, then uh, they up their prices and uh, so on and so forth. So it just sort of, it's cyclical. Yeah, I kind of look at it as um, they say the human anatomy, everything's kind of connected and affects it. This is kind of an economical anatomy in the sense that what we're seeing in terms of inflation, uh, wages, it all kind of affects the economy, but even the crime. Yeah, absolutely. And um, now that uh, all indicators say that we're going to be going into a recession, it's definitely not a good time, not that there's ever a good time. It was just kind of ironic because I was going to, I'm going to talk about some laws that went into effect on July 1st, this past Saturday in the state of California. And the first item on my list is a criminal records uh, seals. So uh, if you're ready, I'm gonna update everyone on uh, some laws that passed in California, or I, sh I should say they have passed, but they're going into effect on July 1st. The criminal record seals, which is SB 731, it was it was actually signed into law last fall by Governor Newsom, uh, making California the first state in the nation to allow almost all old convictions on a person's criminal record to be permanently sealed. This bill will automatically seal convictions and arrest records for most ex-offenders uh, who are not convicted of another felony for four years after completing their sentences and any parole or probation uh, records of arrests that don't bring convictions also will be sealed. So this is a win for people who want to have a fighting chance, a real second chance after being convicted of, of a crime so that they can, you know, they don't have this hanging over them after they've already uh, served their sentences and been punished for it. The next one, which is SB 216, it's workers' compensation. This one says a contractor that doesn't carry workers' compensation insurance could lose their license as a result. Uh, workers' compensation was already required in California, but starting July 1st, uh, this new penalty is going to be added, which is a, which is a big deal. Um, the next one is uh, this... Uh, this wave that started with COVID, which is all remote and Zoom, stuff like that. It's SB 241, which is a remote court appearance. It gives Californians the option to use video conferencing as an alternate to in-person court appearances. Um, I have to say that this bill uh, was going to expire on July 1st. Uh, next one is uh, gun lawsuits, SB 1327. This one reads, private citizens can sue companies that make and sell firearms if they sell assault weapons or ghost gun products, uh, which are already illegal in the state. 
the bill carries a minimum bounty of $10,000 for violators. Uh, next one, it's uh, it's a housing law, uh, which is which is a really really good thing, and it's good news for uh, for us. It's AB two zero one one construction of affordable multifamily housing on land that is zoned for commercial, retail, or parking use is streamlined under AB two zero one one and SB six. Uh, it also straightens wage laws and health benefit rules for construction contractors. And um, the last one is uh, about Juneteenth. It's AB 1655. Juneteenth will now be added to the list of state holidays. Uh, this will mean community colleges and public schools will close schools in addition to state employees uh, being given time off uh, with pay on June 19th. So there you have it. Those are those are some of the laws that went into effect on July 1st in California. That's great. I think a lot of those are very impactful. And I think we, we will see the the residual effects sooner than later. Yeah, this is this is really good stuff. You know, good for us, um, for our state. We live in a great state, California. You know, speaking of laws, Vic and that whole realm. Um, you have a very fascinating interview with a cannabis attorney coming up after the break. I, I got to say, uh, for everyone listening right now, um, you don't want to go anywhere. You want to hear this interview. Vic, before we go to break, would you mind just giving us a little bit, a little tease, uh, what you enjoyed about it the most? Sure. You know, my interview is with Allison Margolin, who's a renowned, uh, one of the top cannabis attorneys, uh, I would say, I would go as far as to say she's an activist attorney. I didn't know much about cannabis. I can't claim to know about it, much about it now. Uh, I've followed different things that have happened in the last dec decade or so, but someone had uh, suggested that I interview her and I thought, you know, this is my chance to learn what's happening in terms of cannabis in the nation, the state, and locally. The laws the practices, what's new, what's myth, what's fact, uh, et cetera. So, you know, Allison Margolin is, is a super impressive attorney. She's Columbia University graduate, Harvard Law. And uh, she really sort of tells us the A to Z of uh, where are we with cannabis? What's happening? What are the challenges? What's legal? What's not legal, uh, et cetera. So hope you uh, enjoy it. Yeah, Vic's interview with Allison is coming up. Very informative, enlightening interview. And you will hear it right after this break. The Blunt Post with Vic. Hello, dear friends of KPFK. My husband, Blaise Bonpain, and I became supporters and contributors to KPFK in 1969. All of this startling and non-startling historical events that have happened since then, and there were so many, made us constantly go to KPFK so we would be better informed and activated. So many times we said, we need KPFK more than ever, and we always did rely on them. Today, more than ever, ever, we need KPFK. We all know that, and we all must do everything we can to keep KPFK alive and vital. Blaze would look down on us with his smile as we do so. Thank you, Teresa Bonpain. This is Stanley Clark, 
Free Speech Radio can't survive without your generous support. Become a KPFK sustaining member now by pledging $1 a day at kpfk.org. Become a sustaining member. Your donation is tax deductible and membership has its privileges. I am a member, so join me, Stanley Clark, in keeping independent radio alive. Donate to KPFK at kpfk.org and do it today. Blunt Post with Vic. Allison Margolin, a Columbia University and Harvard Law graduate, is regarded as one of the premier attorneys in the cannabis industry. Her new book is titled Just Dope, A Leading Attorney's Personal Journey Inside the War on Drugs. It's just that. Allison has successfully litigated several high-profile cases, including defending the rights of the Hmong people to water in California, which has affected state policy. Good morning, Allison. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm good. I really appreciate being on your show. Thank you. Well, likewise, um, I'm uh, I'm sort of a, I guess I'm a novice in the cannabis uh, world. Um, so it's, you know, this, this show is just as much for me to learn and uh, hear your v- wisdom and such. So I'm very interested. My first question, and I will qualify it, where are we when it comes to the state of cannabis laws and freedom, if you will, in the U.S. and regionally and locally? Now, compare that, for example, to LGBTQ rights, where we made huge headways um, since you know, Stonewall, and then during the, the Obama administration, we were able to uh, overturn Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Mar- you know, Defense of Marriage Act and get marriage equality. And then after Trump, there's been a war on LGBTQ again, and it's intensified recently, especially with trans. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the atrocious place that abortion rights are, Roe versus Wade, an unfathomable thing that right. happened, the overturn. So- Considering what I just said, where are we with cannabis right now as we speak? So interestingly enough, cannabis in the same realm as um, LGBTQ rights and in the same realm as what we were just discussing has still has not been recognized as a fundamental right. It has not been recognized, any of these things, as an inalienable right, as a right that comes before our ability to exercise our bill of rights that has not happened yet the state of cannabis law and we'll go we'll go from the federal to the state to the local and i'll do like a geographic discussion so on the federal level cannabis is still what's called the schedule one drug and what that means is there are five schedules of drugs under the federal law one through five one are the type of drugs that still cannot be prescribed And cannabis is, strangely enough, still on that schedule where it cannot be prescribed. That's why in states like California, for example, and other states where marijuana is allowed for, let's say, medical purposes, um, it's called a recommendation, not a prescription, uh, because there's no such thing as a prescription. Under the federal law, there is a defense if someone is charged with a marijuana crime and they're doing it for strictly medical purposes, and they are obeying the medical marijuana laws of that state. However, 
under the federal law, there still is no defense if you are participating in activities that are legal under state law, but are not medical marijuana. So if someone's doing a recreational grow for recreational purposes, though it's being licensed, they still can actually be prosecuted under the federal law. That being said, the state of cannabis is been going in terms of the rights and in terms of legalization has continued to progress in the state legislatures. Um, even during Trump, even uh, and during the Biden administration, and even with the current U.S. Supreme Court. But the difference, I think, is that the U.S. Supreme Court has actually not taken cert on any marijuana cases and has fortunately, I think, in a certain sense, not had the opportunity to decide issues that are central to this issue. For example, is marijuana a fundamental right? Instead, when the U.S. Supreme Court has had the opportunity to take cases such as when Colorado sued, um, I think it was the case, the states surrounding Colorado were suing Colorado regarding their recreational licensing. The U.S. Supreme Court actually didn't take cert on that case. So the U.S. Supreme Court has very, let's say, uh, delicately declined any of these cannabis cases and allowed these dual laws to exist, meaning that the federal law, which still doesn't allow really technically for anything, but there's a defense based on legislative statute for medical. And then there's state laws wherein um, more than 40 states, there's laws on the books relating to either medical, cannabis, or recreational. Now, the federal law is generally not used very often these days for, and I haven't seen it in the last several years at all, for those actors that are acting in compliance with even recreational you know, cannabis law. So there's a policy that if you if you're in a state that has a robust legalization system and you're following that regime, there's a policy that you won't get um, in trouble. Now, alongside the federal law, we have these state laws in some instances allowing recreational cannabis, under instances allowing only medical. But the trend that I think is very interesting when you're looking at this from a rights perspective is that the southern states that have legalized, like Oklahoma, Louisiana. Missouri about to, they have not done what California has done, which is that they have not decriminalized. So you have laws in the, in the South, you have legalization, but if you're not participating in that regime under state law, you can still get 20 to life, 10 to life. In California, the first, we tried to pass legalization in Prop 19, which was about 10 years ago. And our first effort did not include decriminalization. It didn't include um, so the social equity program, which is California's program, and it's also been adopted in New Jersey and New York, which basically gives benefits to people who were criminalized before licensing. So you see that in California, you see it in progressive states, but you still see the same draconian laws that always existed in the southern states. So they have continued to have a dual system of, uh, you know, the people involved in the business now are okay as long as they're licensed, and the people who used to be or the people who are coming from the criminal background still are still in the same horrible position that they were before. So that's kind of like the federal level, the state level. Then we have the local. So in California, in order to pass licensing, there was trades basically, of course, like any legislation, trades made. And one of the trades, the biggest trade that's affecting the whole industry that was made was one where the local governments in California got the opportunity to control whether or not one commercial cannabis existed in their locality. And two, um, they got to decide 
completely whether or not to even allow people to participate in this regime. So at this point, we have 56% of our counties that have still criminalized all sorts, all commercial cannabis, including retail. And in order to try to help the industry, uh, the state of California has actually just given out grants to jurisdictions who want to do retail storefront. So we have the federal law, we have the state laws, and then we have the local laws that dictate if there can be commercial cannabis, what kind of what kind of activities there will be allowed, as well as what the zoning is going to be and where it's allowed, in what locations, how far from a school. Mm -hmm. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with cannabis attorney, Allison Margolin. Where does LA County stand? Well, this is the craziest thing. LA County, so when we talk about the cities and counties, something I didn't learn until I was doing licensing law. LA County, we talk about that's the unincorporated parts of LA County, right? Mm -hmm. LA City is a city in, there's 80 cities in LA County. Correct. So the unincorporated parts of LA County have no commercial cannabis regime at all. They were like about in 2018, there was a board of supervisors intended to pass um, laws to allow retail. Hasn't happened yet at all. So technically in the unincorporated areas of Los Angeles, there's actually no legal commercial cannabis. And unfortunately on the local levels, and this is something that we've seen historically, like with pro during prohibition me, time. Sorry, let me yeah. stop you there. Cause I want to yeah. make sure I ask all the right questions. Of course. So yeah. North, North Hollywood or studio city. Those are unincorporated. They're not cities that are on their own, but yet I've seen cannabis stores. How do they okay, exist? So, yeah. Studio city is actually a community area in the city of Los Angeles. So Los Angeles City is comprised of 36 community plan areas and Studio City is a is in the city of Los Angeles. So in the city of Los Angeles, there is licensing for all activities um, except for volatile manufacturing. So in the city of Los Angeles, we have retail storefronts, uh, cultivation, manufacturing of hashish, wholesale, transportation oh, and retail storefronts. So incorporated would be like Acton, which is on the way to Palmdale, which is L.A. Yeah. County. But it's not yeah. LA City. Okay. Right. I got gotcha. you. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. So, you mentioned something about uh, it's a good thing that the Supreme Court hasn't really uh, reviewed a case like this. Would it, I mean, considering the makeup of the Supreme Court, I'm assuming that it would not be a good thing for the Supreme Court to take on a high profile case. Am I well, correct? I, yeah. Well, it depends. It depends on the way in which it reaches the Supreme Court and what the issues that are involved are. Um, because a cannabis, quote, case can reach the Supreme Court through, let's say, you know, a challenge to its nature as interstate commerce, mm -hmm. which brings about federal jurisdiction. It can occur through arguing that cannabis is a fundamental right. And I think on that area, it's good that that hasn't been brought to the Supreme Court again, because um, as we've seen, I think, like in even last week in the Navajo case and again with the LGBTQ case this week. Um, that came down, I think, today, actually, mm -hmm. the concept of what are considered to be inalienable and fundamental rights, in my opinion, is narrowing. So oh. if, if that's the issue that came across, that would be a problem. Now, if it was an issue rechallenging cannabis as an, as interstate commerce and it was a state and that which has been challenged before and the and the Supreme Court in 2002 decided that cannabis is considered interstate commerce, thereby giving rise to federal jurisdiction, if that came back to the court. 
I mean, there might be a chance that if it's that in that realm, because of the nature of the U.S. Supreme Court right now, and, you know, quite a few justices are into the idea of state rights, maybe, right. you know, maybe things would go an okay direction. Um, so it depends. Now, if there's a challenge, let's say, on the third hand to the unconstitutionally, the, the constitutionality of whether or not cannabis still, you know, belongs in Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act, that I don't, you know, it would be hard to know where the Supreme Court would go, but I don't see the Supreme Court, given its nature, going out further than any other court has and deciding that it's irrational. Generally, there's a lot of deference by this Supreme Court to, you know, what the legislature does. Other than things like today, of course, where the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Biden's ability to forgive loans. Um, so it depends, I guess, That's on the vehicle. It makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court. But at the moment, we're best off, I think, in this, at least as so long as the government has a policy of not getting involved. But of course, yeah. people who are, doing, you know, people who are, and I've had a case like this, people who are doing some things that are legal and some things that are illegal in the cannabis world are still subject to federal mandatory minimums of 10 years to life. So, you know, of course, the best, the best, the best thing that could happen would be that the attorney general or Congress descheduled cannabis. I mean, that would be the mm. best scenario. I mean, this is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with cannabis attorney, Allison Margolin. Let me ask you this. So um, I've heard in the past that uh, the push for uh, people who have who have late late term HIV or full blown AIDS and how much cannabis helped them, uh, that push and that lobbying, uh, if you will, was uh, very instrumental in getting the the whole cannabis movement going. Uh, what do you think about that? Oh, I think it's one hundred percent correct. So basically what happened was in the late 80s, early 90s, um, there was a huge push um, amongst commu you know, communities who supported people who had AIDS to allow for the medical use of cannabis. And California became the first state in 1996 as a result of those efforts and people like Dennis Perone and AIDS activists, mm -hmm. without whom it would ever get passed. That's how the first medical marijuana law passed in California, no doubt. And actually... Even before that law passed, in places like San Francisco, the police department tolerated dispensaries. So I actually went when I was like 17, 18 years old with my dad to Dennis Perone's dispensary in San Francisco in 1994, two oh. years yeah, before it was passed. And it was the most beautiful three-story dispensary with a bakery with um, an area for people to play instruments. And then the bottom floor was like the weed you know, area. And uh, the San Francisco Police Department had a police officer outside monitoring it. So without the push, and it was without without the push of the AIDS community, there never there wouldn't probably there still may not be medical marijuana at this point. Um, now, let let me ask you this: um, Is it fair to say, or is it correct to say that California is the most liberal state with cannabis? I think it, it would definitely. I think it's Colorado. correct. Because, no, I think it's Cal. I mean, I would say California. Um, I don't. And I'd have to look at, I, I know that in New Jersey and in New York, there also is an effort to, there has been an effort to decriminalize possession, mm -hmm. but I don't know of any other state where you can sell any number of pounds of marijuana, any number, grow any quantity, and you can't really be charged with more than a misdemeanor offense justly. Now, 
when I say justly, I'm like right here. We're in Siskiyou County, for example. Um, they charge, you know, and I would say due to, I would say racism in the district attorney's office, or you might say, and, you know, let's say some, and I wouldn't say it applies to everybody, but there's, you know, one particular district attorney, deputy district attorney, um, who is filing cases, felony cases, seeming to be at a higher rate against Asian Americans than she is filing um, the same against white Americans. And you can still technically charge a felony for some marijuana cases that involve out-of-state transportation. And there's a couple loopholes in the law where if you have a district attorney who's trying to be crafty, they still come up with felony charges. But I've never had, after the after cannabis has been legalized and after decriminalization, I've never had a prosecutor be successful in charging um, a felony for actually any marijuana case in state court. Um, even where it's like someone's bringing 20 pounds on the airplane, depending on what airport, you can generally negotiate for them. Sometimes dismissals, sometimes misdemeanors, but I don't think there's any state that has the breadth of decriminalization that California does. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with cannabis attorney, Allison Margolin. So Allison, you wrote a, a book called Just Dope, um, which is basically your your journey, if you will, your career through, uh, you know, the, 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 the fight against drugs or the war on drugs, you know, and the laws around it and such. Uh, if you can tell us a little bit about your book. Yeah, so I, when I, started out, you know, when I was like eight years old, before I wanted to be a lawyer, I wanted to be a writer. And when I was, you know, and I finally <laughs> somewhat was able to do it with this, but basically it follow, it's kind of like, it follows my own personal story growing up kind of like in the heart of the, in the dichotomy of kind of the heart of the legalization movement with my dad, who has been the director of uh, Los Angeles Normal, which is the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws since 1967. And I was born wow. in 70. So I had like half of my life was kind of like in that realm. And then growing up with my mom, with like my grandparents who raised me who are Holocaust survivors. And it's the story how of how all those things came together to make me kind of realize at a young age that it was also my dharma to end the war on drugs, even though I was a very straight kid when I was young. Um, and then it kind of follows my own path, working towards legalization, like basically doing drugs myself once I got to law school, because until then I actually didn't <laughs> really. Uh-huh. And then it follows my, um, like my career where I, like I got out, I went to Harvard law school and coming out and working for my dad and then realizing that like my dad, even though he was uh, this great Zen philosopher was somewhat of an unsupportive, but very smart and has a lot of good qualities shark working for him. And it goes through me starting my own practice and um, how my, how I kind of, you know, advertise myself. And then some of my biggest trials and, you know, experiences in the courtroom from fighting against one of the things that a lot of people don't realize in California, I covered this is how the doctors who recommended marijuana have been serially like annihilated, losing their licenses um, over the last 25 to 30 years constantly. So I, I talked in a chapter about a criminal case I had done where a marketer from a medical marijuana dispensary had been charged and still is being charged in Santa Clara County with multiple counts of business and professions codes. I talked about um, the fight, you know, doing trials before we had licensing 
when cannabis was an affirmative defense and just the things that you kind of have to go through practicing law and how I saw it as, you know, how, how, how understanding um, epigenetics and having an understanding of um, how drugs behave. Cause I actually was able to, and I talked about this, I did a year at the Berkeley exchange program when I was at Harvard law school, I got to take drugs in the brain and how having the knowledge that I did about drugs and harm reduction informed and allowed me to deal with things myself, but still be a successful lawyer, even as I was dealing with my own personal stuff. Um, so I kind of go through like an A to Z. And then I also include like a social history of the drug war from like the current time through the 1800s. And I ended off with, I ended off with um, a discussion of fentanyl and progressive politicians and, pro- and progressive uh, prosecutors, uh, which is something that we've been fortunate enough in Los Angeles to have for the last several years. So it's kind of like, that's so I, and it's just dope is supposed to be a double entendre, like justice and dope like drugs. And also it's just cool. So it's always a fun device I like to use. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with cannabis attorney, Allison Margolin. Wow. Your background's pretty, I mean, impressive. Uh, Columbia, Harvard, your dad, and, um, you know, you're, you're just sort of like all around, very comprehensive. And, and you're just so casual, too, which is like, it's kind of like cherry on top. You know, you're, you're not like the totally cold-faced power attorney looking, uh, you know, your approach. No. That's what well, I'm my mom, it's because of It's because of my mother. So my dad gets credit, but my mom has been a, a lawyer for 50 years now. And she is, she is, you know, she's responsible for how I am. She was, my dad actually would probably like me to be more formal. And my dad wears a suit like all the time. My mom runs her practice very similar to me, even though she's like ostensibly straight. Um, she's very kind. She's very informal. And she's very not impressed with herself. And she still is doing trials like all the time. She does family law. But when I was born, they both were criminal defense lawyers. So I had, um, you know, I had people around. My mom definitely keeps me, you know, in place. She uh, would never let me be any different. So it's a, it's a family <laughs> business. Um, Allison. Yes, yes. Give us some uh, major uh, myths that that are out there that sort of like have their own life and people just repeating them, thinking that it's true about cannabis. Yeah, so I can tell you one. Yeah, well, there's an idea about cannabis and drugs in general that there's a, quote, addiction gene. And I think that's something to start with. The science these days, this is something I like intuitively believe before the science was starting to show it, is that there is no such thing as an addiction gene. There's trauma that's passed down between generations. And then there's the way people cope with the trauma, mm-hmm. which can be drugs. And you can copy that behavior, but there's no gene that is for addiction. And the same thing with cannabis. You know, there's no cannabis addiction gene. I think there is an idea that um, if someone, you know, in the, let's say in the in the communities that are focused on like either, some, you know, let's say in the sobriety-based rehabilitation communities, which are many, there's a notion that using cannabis is going to lead you to other drugs. Um, the and gateway that, drug um, right, argument. Exactly. And um, there's no evidence for that at all. Um, and if anything, I think that the studies show that where cannabis is safely accessible, reasonably accessible, 
um, that the rates of other addictions generally go down in those states. Mm -hmm. But it has to be not just that there's medical marijuana, that it's accessible to most people, that it's safely accessible and affordable. So I think those are, um, so I think if anything, using, you know, cannabis can help people with addictions to other substances. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those are, I would say, are the are the two the biggest, biggest ones. I mean, yeah. then maybe the third one being that cannabis makes you a certain way. Um, I would say one of the biggest myths I think is that it makes people like unmotivated. Um, in reality, it's the kind of drug that it's it's strange. It's not like any other. It's not like other drugs that are stimulants, really, or depressants or psychedelics. But it's more one that embellishes your current mood. So I think that's important for people to know, and also. Um, that it's the set and setting in addition to the pharmaceutical qualities of the drug, just like cannabis that are relevant in how you experience it. Right. So I think those are all, and those are just as important as the pharmacology. Okay. And then I guess the last myth is that everyone in the cannabis industry is making a lot of money. And unfortunately due to various factors involving local corruption, corruption of agencies and all the regulations that are, highly unnecessary that's not the case but i think that you know i would say those are the those are the major myths that, that's interesting to know i mean i would have never had any idea but it but it makes sense so um i have one last question for you before i let you go i know you're yes. super busy is what what's the fight now what are you fighting it could be something that you personally like a pro- high profile case you have or What's the fight for the cannabis uh, community, if you will, that we're facing? Yeah, the fight that we're facing is that it's very difficult for you. In the beginning, um, some people got into the you know cannabis industry when it was first licensed in certain locations. But in general, because of the local laws, mostly. The next step is basically to figure out how people who are growers can get into the industry in, um, in a way that's not too expensive for them and that's feasible. And the reason we have so much illegal, you know, the illegal industry, most of the people in the quote illegal industry are actually people who also have licenses who can't pay their bills. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of what's going on right now is that the price of marijuana per pound has dramatically decreased such that it's very difficult for people who are not huge big time growers to even sustain themselves. So the next fight is federal legalization, which would allow us to export cannabis, not just to other states, but internationally. And I think beyond that is going to be making it such that you regulate cannabis like any other agricultural product. So the people, they get a place, it's zoned rural agricultural, they put in their plant and they get to grow it like any other agricultural product without waiting two to three years, which is what it takes to get an outdoor license. And then the final kind of chapter of that is um, what I've been working on lately is making sure that cannabis is not used to take away other fundamental rights from people, mm-hmm. um, such as what happened um, up, you know, in Siskiyou County, but using cannabis as an excuse to um basically pass laws against people simply really because you don't want those people around and using cannabis as an excuse. So I think the future is also going to be what's going to happen with, you know, water rights and cannabis. That's a case I've been working on recently. Um, But uh, the overregulation, getting people to be able to be in the industry without having to wait 
several years and also ending the, the corruption that has unfortunately permeated count city councils, including our own LA city council, where we have one of our city council members in federal prison um, for many years. He just, you know, was sentenced last year. And one of the counts involves cannabis corruption. And so, you know, it's very difficult for people to be able to get into an industry that's overregulated and corrupt. So those are the major things we have to change. And of course, um, on an equity aspect, any federal law would have to involve the dismissal of all cannabis. We would have to say that it cannabis is a fundamental right, such that all the states have to dismiss people from, you know, dismiss people's cases who are current cannabis cases. And there, the legislature needs to create a constitutional floor so that the states cannot have their own laws that subject people to mandatory minimums, et cetera, you know, under the new federal regime. So I think the future is um, creating legislation, recognizing cannabis as a fundamental right, creating constitutional floors, and then starting to treat it like other agricultural products. And so we have we have ways to go and you're fighting the good fight. Yes. Um, Allison, are you taking any more clients? Can people reach oh, you? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, and yes. They can be, what's your they, website? Uh, How can they reach well, you? My website actually is under construction. It's AllisonMargolin.com. The reason it is is because I'm trying to update it to comply with the Americans for Disabilities Act. Right. But you can call me or email me. Look up my profile on the State Bar website. Um, okay. that's the easiest thing you can Google me, but yeah, look me up, Allison Margolin and you'll see, I have a Wikipedia page I wrote myself. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. I love it. Well, yes, thank you for criminal cases. So thank you so much. No, thank you for all the wisdom. This was very interesting, informative for me. Uh, I truly appreciate it. Uh, good luck to you and uh, hope to chat with you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Vic. Thank you. Well, thank you, Allison, for uh, being on the Blunt Post with Vic uh, this morning for all your wisdom, uh, your activism, making California a maverick and a leader in this field. Appreciate your time. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.